I'll get to eat food and take pictures of people eating food. Well, take pictures of people who at one point Dude, or another will be eating food. You're supposed to push the buttons with pictures of people <laughs> eating food on them. <laughs> Don't need to, Skeet. I guess the guy who was uh, um, for Skeet, that was uh, also the same voice actor as Carl Weezer. Oh, sure. Rob Paulson, he's all over the place in animation. Mm-hmm. Unsurprising. Yeah. Yeah. The, the an- TV animation like voice acting pool is surprisingly shallow. Yeah. Well, maybe not surprising. That shallow group of voice actors is pretty talented. They, they Very proliferate talented. proliferate all over the place, yeah. And then there's <clears> Patrick Warburton. <laughs> Who's just Patrick Warburton? You, you get him to do the Patrick into, Warburton voice. When right. people want Patrick Warburton, Warburton to play Patrick Warburton voice character, I use the Warburton to portray the Warburton. <laughs> yeah. See, he has like, same thing with Eddie Murphy. Maybe not as much like a range, but right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But his voice is just so like so waves so hands audibly. Different. Waves hands audibly. Different. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's uh, voice acting is something that I would be willing. I haven't really, honestly, tried a ton. I've I used to do like little stop motion videos in high school, and sort of voice acted those. But then like. There's only so many different voices you can do yourself before it becomes obvious it's just you. Right. Um, some people are good at masking that. I've been looking for an excuse to get more into voice acting because I feel like I could probably get pretty into it. If you want to do some kind of like project related to that, just kind of some improv project or some just assign characters and read through a comic or a script or something, mm-hmm. that'd be fun. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Isaac would be super into that too. So yeah, um, I yeah, I think we could use like a script writer that I can throw ideas at and ask them to develop it, or just, or actually just write down. Figure myself. out how to do it. Yeah. Um, if I had the time and motivation and inspiration, I'd do stuff like that. Yep. Well, I've got plenty of motivation and inspiration, but time it's just is time. Quicker. Time. It's not enough time. Time. It's not enough time. <laughs> um, there's always time for a song. Uh, that is the plot of Majora's Mask. That is a Majora's <laughs> Mask. That's uh, that's what I'm playing right now. Yeah, he just started that. Yep, I got through the first dungeon so far, and then mm. I have occasionally needed hints in places where the game isn't completely obvious about what you're supposed to do next. Yeah, it's N64 game. It can be obtuse. Yeah. Like, for example, I totally would have thought that a giant block of ice blocking my path, you should shoot the block of ice above it in order for it all to shatter. Because my video game convention's brain is like, okay, get fire to melt ice. But there is no way of getting fire, so now I'm stuck. It's like, well, obviously you shoot the stalactite of ice above it. 
You got to target more things and listen to the fairy. Yeah, I guess I have to listen to the fairy. <laughs> I'd say through the first dungeon, I was able to do it more or less without input. Um, But yeah, there's just a couple of spots where I got stuck, but it's been kind of fun so far. Having fairly recent, well, it's been a few months now, but fair, relatively recently played Ocarina of Time. Majora's Mask feels pretty familiar in terms Which of how to play. Kind of the point. <clears throat> what else, uh, Nathan? You finished uh, Ori and the Blind and the Will of the Wisps recently. I did. I got. Well, pro- I got. That'll probably be an episode. I got and played through that. I, I might do one on both the Ori like games. Like a, a joint Ori, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Combine them, there's enough to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, have you played or seen any of that, Riley? I have seen some people play it. I've never played it myself. Okay. Well, it's we'll talk about it later, I suppose. Stay I tuned. Get into depth. It's uh, a rather beautiful game. That's what I have to say about it so yeah. far. It does uh, look nice. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Metroidvanias aren't really my kind of game. They're, so they're I, exactly I my kind of games. So. I don't gravitate to them. I'm not opposed to playing them. I just would play other things first, sure. yep. sort of by inclination. At the very least, i got to send you a couple of the, the soundtrack samples because it's real good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, um, that's kind of a thing I did recently. Yep. And then uh, probably the next thing I'll play after Ocarina, excuse me, Ocarina, or not Ocarina, Majora's Mask, which is Ocarina Part 2. But, um, well, 1.5. But, the Squeakle. Yeah, the Squeakle. Um, I'll probably start the Arkham games. Those are good, too. Because mm. I have access to those on Steam. So that's probably the next thing. After that, I don't know. I'll. And you don't have to have a five-year plan of what video games you're going to play. <laughs> nah. <laughs> that's not a thing you need. I think my bucket list is I'm starting to get closer to the end of it. So, not to oh, say I that. can always supply new stuff. Oh, I'm sure. I'm I, sure. I've I've got some too, don't worry. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Um like the bucket list of games I would naturally gravitate towards and then, you know, at which point be open to suggestions to expand my horizons a bit, which I mean I already have to a certain degree. Mhm. Um, to a to a rather large degree, in fact. Yeah, I you, don't think you had ever would have picked up Witcher three on your own. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, if I hadn't if I hadn't seen it played, I probably wouldn't have ever played it. But having watched you play it a bit, and then you kind of gave me the Xbox controller to start my own save that I never finished on that because it was Duncan's <laughs> Xbox, but. Uh, having that initial experience with playing it, yeah, that definitely sold me on it. So, um, and actually, a not, well, I mean, yeah, to your point, like a fair few of the games I've played have been on recommendation, like the Zelda games. Yes. Although, well, Zelda I already had sort of an interest in, but Nathan was my supplier. So. <laughs> I, I, hey, kid, I got the goods. Do you yeah, want to play a Zelda Zelda's. game? <laughs> You want a first edition GameCube Zelda? My GameCube, my uh, my gateway into the, my gateway drug into Zeldas was Breath of the Wild, obviously, and then right, it was all downhill from there. Really? It was all downhill in terms of the acceleration of sure, sure, Zelda sure. games, <laughs> that, not in terms of in quality, terms of quality. No, but I mean, like, also, you start out Breath of the Wild on top of a big hill. You do. Yeah, anyway. Uh, what's new with y'alls? 
Well, things are uh, coming to a head here in the academic calendar at the old St. Minerid. A little less than a month left of the academic year for you two, I suppose, huh? Two weeks. Yeah, that's a thing. I have just about two weeks left, so hmm. things are things are happening at a pace. Indeed. There's certainly a speed at which things are happening. Yes. How the times do progress. Tempus um, fugit, indeed. Yes. <laughs> Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like banana. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I suppose, how are things shaping up for the end of the semester for you, Nathan? Uh, are you doing senior design stuff yet? Um, there's three senior design classes I have to take, like back to back. I'm doing senior design one right now. Gotcha. And the project we have to do is kind of a small project. So it's sort of like to me get and you my, warmed up. The, yeah. Me and my teammate designed a circuit board. I think the, the PCB actually just came in, so we should get together Sick. and solder all the bits in and test it so cool, right? right right so for for that sort of thing is there like some sort of expense account that ndsu gives you or do you have to pay for it um there, there's there's a bit of an expense account it's kind of baked into the class sure because they expect you to pay for or they they expect each team to have like a circuit board they get right hmm. and the parts involved what does yours do uh mine uh detects if a door has been open for longer than a minute. Ah. Uh, there's like a, a switch that if you remove the magnetic switch from it, uh, the timer will start and it'll go for 60 seconds and then it'll start, um, it'll stop sending a pulse to a switch that'll allow current to go through so that the buzzer will be annoying so you can shut the door. Stuff that uh, is easy to design for uh people who aren't finished with all of their classes yep so that's pretty neat um it is went to my my first uh mug night in a long while last night oh yeah uh that was fun it was a little too late for for mr works at 5 30 in the morning guy yep but it was a good time just met up with some newman people after they got done with their uh wednesday night activities so that was fun that was good good to good to knock back a a mug and uh enjoy some fellowship and monsignor schlossman showed up for a little while so that was pretty fun Mm, he's fun yeah um but yeah so things are pretty beachy for the most part it got warm today which is good got the big bike race coming up this weekend too that's the other thing about saturday is the first half of Saturday I'm doing the annual Newman Center bike race and then I'll be coming home for a couple hours and then getting ready and going over to the auction that will go from hmm. 4 to 10 o'clock. So that's going to be a long Saturday. But mm. mm-hmm. the joys of being a salaried laborer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. Sucks it's, you got it, a job. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you know, paying bills and having Employment, a paycheck that's geez. reliable every month. That's just what the burden I must bear <laughs> for my own well-being. Um, speaking of well-being, we're the Palladium Papists. I'm James. I'm Nathan. And I'm Riley. What are we talking about today, Riley? Well, uh, we've got some novel ideas today about the kite runner. 
Ideas is the part of the show where we have ideas about novels that are novel in themselves. So, tell us about The Kite Runner, Riley. The Kite Runner is a book written by Khaled Hosseini. Um, I probably butchered the pronunciation of your name, sir, so sorry about that. Apologies. Apologies. But the book was published in 2003, and... um, there was a movie about it made in 2007 that I haven't seen, so I can't speak to how good it is, how faithful to the story of the book, whatever, whatever. Given the but time it, at which it came out, I'd be a little bit dubious, but... Given uh, what I've read about it says it's fairly faithful to the book, so... Okay. Which which is pretty plausible, given the I've scope got of the book. Aragon and, PTSD, but... Yeah. But... So the the book begins in Afghanistan in 1974 with a boy named Amir. He's a Pashtun, which is one of the ethnicities in the area. He lives in Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan, with his father, who we just referred to as Baba. And Baba is a pretty wealthy merchant, so the family is well-to-do. And his best friend, Hassan, is sort of, he lives with them because uh, his father is um, Baba's servant. So they just kind of all live in the same household, and Baba treats Hassan like a son, basically. Gives him all the same things that um, um, that Amir gets, so they're kind of given equal treatment in terms of stuff they get, which is much to Amir's chagrin, because, well, Hassan's not actually his son, and he feels like he should be getting recognition that he's not getting. Mm. So both both of the boys don't have mothers. Amir's mother died in childbirth, and Hassan's mother abandoned them, his father and he, when he was young, so... Neither of them have a significant female influence in the household. Um, On the flip side, however, Hassan is a Hazara, which is one of the kind of lesser looked upon ethnicities by the Pashtun. So they're kind of a bit regarded as oppressed and they aren't regarded as equals. So there is that tension there. Is it kind of like a caste thing, or it's not really just different because caste is like classes within an ethnic group, Mm. whereas this is just you know difference of ethnicity ethnicities. Yep. So while um, Baba treats Hassan with you know kind of showers him with gifts and all that and always has good things to say about him, he's very critical of Amir and never praises him, never gives him, shows him affection, and so Amir is kind of resentful of Hassan because of that, because he feels like he's never being recognized for anything that he does. He's never getting the affection that he feels he needs. But nonetheless, Amir and Hassan are very close and very good friends. Hmm. Um, In one of the few conversations 
that Amir can actually just sit down and have with Baba. He inquires why Baba drinks alcohol, which is forbidden by Islam. And Baba responds by saying that the mullah, which are kind of the uh, Muslim faith leaders, are kind hypocrites. Of like, kind of like rabbis of a sort. It's rabbis, priests, that equivalent to that sort of thing. Hmm. And he claims that they are hypocrites and that the only true sin is theft. You can see the that he's... He's a merchant. He's out to protect his own interests. And he feels that that's the only fair way to conduct commerce, you know, is if that sin, the only sin there can be is theft. So, uh, Baba's best friend, Rahim Khan, is the one that Amir goes to for a more affectionate father figure. And he kind of reassures... Amir and his interests. Amir wants to become a writer, which his father looks down upon as sort of a feminine activity, and so he doesn't really approve of that. But Rahim Khan encourages Amir to pursue that that goal and, you know, provides him with some fatherhood that his biological father isn't really providing. Mm -hmm. um, we're introduced to the main antagonist, Asef, who is... Um, like a full-blown racist against the Hazara and also kind of a sadist and violent, so he's real bad news. Mm -hmm. He's only half Pashtun. His mother is German, so he's got the blonde hair and blue eyes, and he's, of course, kind of infatuated with Nazism. This is not too far after that was a thing. Only about mm -hmm. 30 years, yeah. Yeah, 20, 30 years. So, one day Asef tries to attack Amir while he's just out conducting his business, but Hassan defends him with his slingshot, and Asef swears that one day he's going to get revenge for those events because he just really felt like beating Amir up that day, and he didn't get to, so he's very sour about it. Mm -hmm. um, sometime later, there's a kite-flying contest, so... Uh, Hassan is Amir's kite runner, which is sort of what the title of the book comes from. And that means that he's the one who goes and retrieves the kite after you've let it go. And he always knows where Amir's kites are going to land because they have that kind of relationship and he just has the skill at doing that. Mm -hmm. So in this contest, Amir emerges victorious and finally wins some praise from his father, which is like, great, nice. Yeah. yeah. It's a good my moment. Dad, my dad cares about me. Yeah. This is sounding like a Pixar film. <laughs> and then Hassan runs to go get the kite. He's saying, for you, a thousand times over, you know, because they have that kind of friendship that they would really put out for each other. Or so Hassan thinks. Hmm. So as he's going to find the kite, Asef corners him and threatens to beat him up if he doesn't give hand over the kite. Hassan refuses to give over the kite because it's his best friend's kite. And if he doesn't bring it back to his dad, he won't have the same level of respect from his dad. So he wants to preserve that for Amir. Mm -hmm. And so um, Asef brutally beats him and rapes him. Hmm. Oh, 
Hmm. And uh, Amir is like thinking that Hassan's taking a little too long. So he goes around and tries to find him and sees this event going on and doesn't do anything. He just walks mm-hmm. away. And Hassan sees him just walk away. And so we have this mm. tremendous betrayal of trust between That's not Amir cool. and Hassan because of because of his, you know, he knew that he couldn't stand up to Asef and his buddies. You know, he's just physically weaker. That he would just get the same thing happen to him. He was too afraid to intervene. And so he allows Hassan to suffer in his place, more or less. And so this, you know, Hassan doesn't really intend to talk about it. He's just he's just going to let it slide because, you know, he has that kind of sacrificial friendship for Amir. But Amir kind of wants to get rid of him because he just can't bear to, to look at this reminder of his cowardice anymore. Mm. So he plots a scheme to steal some money from Baba, hide it under Hassan's bed, tell him about it, and then hopefully that'll get Hassan kicked out because of course the one the one true sin the one for his father is theft. Steal. So he he executes this scheme. Everything's going as planned, and Baba comes in and calls Hassan to him, and he says, "You know, I forgive you." And of course, Amir isn't expecting this at all. He would have expected his father to just um, accuse him in a rage and kick him out of his house, but he doesn't. And this really, really kind of puts the nail in the coffin for Amir as far as how he feels about his own relationship with Hassan, because all this time, someone who's not really his son has been getting preferential treatment and... Amir is very bitter about that. Hmm. But ultimately, um, Hassan has kind of had enough. So he and his father get out of Dodge because they don't want to deal with this anymore. That's kind of the end of Act 1. So after that, we begin... uh, We fast forward to 1979 when the Soviet military comes into Afghanistan and basically takes over and makes Afghanistan a puppet state of the Soviet Union. And, of course, that comes with stifling free trade, which Baba is very concerned in. So his business is suffering and his family can't make a living anymore. So they decide to try to get out of the country and flee to America. So which they eventually do. They end up in Fremont, California, and work in this kind of rundown. Well, they live in this rundown apartment, and Baba works at a gas station. So he's fallen from this wealthy merchant into a, basically the peasant class of America. You know, mm-hmm. just a nobody. Another average worker. But they... Baba finds some solace in this life because he's doing kind of what he loves doing anyway. It's just like being self-sufficient, doing things for himself, doing things on his own terms. That's his M.O. So he's not 
terribly sad about it. He's just happy that he gets to live his life freely. Uh, Amir goes to school, eventually starts taking some writing classes so he can hopefully begin to... His goal is to become a novelist, so that's what he's after. Mm -hmm. um, they meet another immigrant family, and one of their daughters, Soraya, um, Amir falls in love with, and they get married. And so they shortly thereafter find out that they're sterile, so they can't have any children, which is mm. the big sad. Because mm -hmm. they wanted to settle down, start a family, and all that good stuff. So Act 3 comes around, and Amir gets a call from his long-lost friend Rahim Khan, who is kind of informing Amir that his health is declining and that he would really like for Amir to come visit before he dies. So Amir f goes back to Afghanistan, and this is around 15 years later, so this is like you know, late 90s, I think, mm -hmm. early 2000s, somewhere in there. And um, at this point, the Taliban have kind of taken over Afghanistan, and so he's kind of having to dodge them while trying to get to Rahim. And once he gets there, they, they kind of sit down, have a chat about how things have been going, and uh, some things are revealed that um, Rahim has been meaning to tell him. Firstly, that both Ali and Hassan are dead, you know, killed in various ways by the Taliban. Ali stepped on a landmine, and Hassan was, you know, he refused to let them enter his home, so they just killed him. And it turns out, this should be no surprise to anyone, that Ali was not really Hassan's father, Baba was. And so oh. Amir and he are half brothers, which uh, makes sense when you when you look at how they were treated. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that would be why Hassan's mother abandoned him because you know, he mm -hmm. chose to get with Amir's mother, so didn't mm -hmm. want to be involved in that. Um, and Rahim knows of some Taliban that have been snatching orphans from the orphanage and he knows one that he would like for Amir to try to save mm -hmm. and this he's like since he can't yeah, himself I'm woefully unprepared to do anything like that but since I haven't been able to have children myself I would really like to be able to raise a child so I'll do my best and so they go in and try to talk with the Taliban to convince them to release this kid named Sorab. And it turns out that the guy heading up the local Taliban contingent is none other than Asef, mm. uh -huh. the bully from his childhood. So um, uh, Asef agrees to release uh, Sorab if Amir can beat him in a fight which we also know that Amir is woefully unprepared to do, being mm -hmm. kind of a, a sedentary lifestyle writer. And Asef is this sadistic, violent guy. So it, it happens like it would have happened <coughs> way back in the day had he never 
had he actually been the one to receive Asaf's violence instead of Hassan. So he gets absolutely beaten to a pulp. And he's trying to escape, but Sorab uses his slingshot to defend um, Amir, and they escape. So they work their way to the, the embassy in Afghanistan and kind of hide out while Amir recovers. They aren't really convinced, well, they don't have proof that Sorab is actually an orphan, so they're reticent to let him come with Amir back to the U.S. Because, you know, Sorab has been through a lot of traumatic experiences, and so he's very withdrawn, doesn't talk a lot, and so he won't affirm that he's an orphan because he just will not interact with anyone in any capacity. Mm-hmm. So they're like, are you trying to steal this kid and you're like going to hurt him if he, if he talks? So they're kind of unsure. Um, so Amir tells him, like, you know, I guess you might have to go back to the orphanage because they won't let you come with me. And Sorab hates it there, so he attempts suicide, which he is unsuccessful at. Mm. And that convinces them that he really doesn't want to go back to the orphanage, so he probably wants to go to the U.S. with Amir. So they let him go. And they bring him back to the States, and he's still very withdrawn and distant. But... uh, Amir shows him some of his kite tricks, and that gets him to come out of his shell the the ever slightest bit. And he begins to interact with them and learn some of the tricks himself. And when they let him fly the kite, him he'll be the flyer, and Amir is the runner. And the the whole book ends with him saying, "For you, a thousand times over." mirroring what Hassan said before he went to retrieve the kite at the contest. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So there you have it. There indeed. So it's a... Uh, Tell me your thoughts while I consume beverage. Yeah. Well, it covers some pretty heavy topics. But, yeah, from, uh, the, from the war, the racism, the violence, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is... That's an unpleasant topic. <laughs> but a sort of, at least for those of us in the U.S. who only really know about Afghanistan from the news over the last 20 years, sort of adds a humanizing element. You know, it's like, you know, there are still norm- normal people over there. Absolutely. I mean, the first place uh, that uh, gets affected by a war is the place where the war starts, mm-hmm. you know? Um. But it's interesting, too, how, like, things kind of come full circle that way. It's almost like a Charles Dickens' book where, like, the all the connections come together at the end. And um, you realize, like, all, all the connections. But I guess having not read the book, I don't know if that's the way it's, like, written. But There's definitely some elements of that. There's a lot of parallels in the events in... Act 1 and Act 3. Oh, sure. So, like, when Amir gets, you know, really beat up by Seth trying to secure his freedom, he's sort of redeeming his earlier cowardice Mm -hmm. when he was young Mm -hmm. by 
taking the beating himself instead of just watching and ultimately running away. And then, you know, Sorab defends him with a slingshot, which is also what Hassan did. So it's drawing that parallel too, where, you know, because of his courage this time around, he's enabled someone who's so disconnected from reality to take an action and, you know, try to save the one who's trying to secure his freedom. Mm Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah. uh, what were the, some of the main things you liked about it? There is the, you know, like you guys have mentioned, it's like the, the very first-hand real-life experience of what it was like to live in Afghanistan in a multi-generational way. And like even like that perspective on what it was like before war, it was like ravaged by war. Uh-huh. Right, from... Because it starts out when you when they're in a perfectly good place, like independently and stuff. But then you well, got the Soviet Union. Well, yeah, not perfectly good. Not perfectly good. But it's there like was no better than before war the, going on. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But then you've got skip to an area era with the Soviet Union causing a mess, and then skip to an era with the Taliban causing a mess, and it's you kind of get a like lifetime's worth of overview of that what it was like to be from there and live there mm-hmm. a little bit. Because the average American, all they really know about Afghanistan is that there's been a armed forces presence from the U.S. there since 2001. And it's just sort of automatically associated with, like, you know, the Taliban and terrorism and things like that. But it's like, you know, there's still real people who live, you know, there's still, like, regular people who lived there and had lives and, um, their own and stories. at the end of the day, don't have values horridly different from ours. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. They value freedom. They value the ability to make your own way in the world. So mm-hmm. he's kind of right at home in America. Mm-hmm. There's uh, that's the thing I get from like listening to the stories of like veterans from you know the early war on terror, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, is like. You know, when they interact with, like, the regular civilians, most of them were just kind of normal families who had, like, their business and their house. And it wasn't all that different from American families, really. And they they despised the terrorists as much as everyone else did. Except for, for them, it was much more immediate. Mm-hmm. So. But, yes. They, uh... That's, that's, yeah, that's the main comment, I guess, I have about... I think... One thing that's interesting is um, how Amir, the main character, right? Yeah. Um, How he kind of harbored a lot of resentment and a lot of kind of prejudice against his, what eventually we learn, Mm half-brother. But in spite of that, they were good friends for a long time, and he did still love him. It's just he kind of had a lot of... uh, kind of deep down unresolved it's more like hassan stuff. was like his proxy for his issues with his father like in terms yeah. of yeah you know taking that out on him but in spite of all that constant reminder of just how insufficient he feels uh they they still had a brotherhood mm-hmm. he could still bring himself to you know fly kites with him mm-hmm. 
and do so in a very like tight knit synergistic way. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, um, his ability to um, uh, kind of start over with this new kid, mm-hmm. right? To kind of help make up for his past uh, wrongdoings his, and failures uh, as yeah. a brother, as a his ex, his uh, omission from doing what he should have back from in the day. from what what he had done and what he had failed to do, mm-hmm. as it were, precisely. So, is the author himself from Afghanistan? Or yes, like, he is. Okay, because it seems like you know something like you wouldn't be able to write about it in this way if you didn't have that firsthand experience. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's often that's probably like the best way to really like get that perspective, for sure. Because it's like there was like a series of books that I was, um, and the, it's still fiction, but like written in a very authentic way. Because there's like a, a book. Um, there's this author I read growing up who wrote these stories about these kids growing up in the Netherlands when they're occupied by Nazi Germany because that's when she had grown up um, and was very familiar with like the culture and stuff and was able to provide that unique insight. So it seems it's like need very... to get those perspectives. Yeah. Another From... cool thing tangentially related is that Laura Bush actually read it and invited him to the White House. Oh, so, wow. and they, uh, you know, had a chat with the president and stuff, and she really, really liked the book and saw it as very eye-opening. So, mm-hmm. that's pretty you know, cool. That, that is neat. It's made a real impact on, you know, people who have a direct influence over how policy was carried out with regards to people from Afghanistan in in the the days after that ha- the events happened. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. book was written two years after 9-11, so mm-hmm. it was still very fresh. And people minds. were not exactly keen on looking at uh, Afghanistan in any sort of positive light. And this is all stuff that, you know, was going on, like, when we were more or less. I was, I think, when they invaded Afghanistan, I was four. four. So I remember sort of watching, like, then declare war on the news and stuff like that, like vaguely, but mm-hmm. it's kind of, kind of wild. Yeah, seems yeah. so. I mean, it was long ago, but it's uh, it's weird being able to remember back almost twenty years, like getting to that age. But, uh, but yeah. So, I guess uh, any other comments before we launch into some transcendental analysis? Nope. Let's get into it. All right, then. then. Uh, Truth. What are some truths that we can pull from uh, the Kite Runner? Or not pull from, but, you know, like uh, gather. Draw from from the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Glean. Um, uh, People from other countries are probably not so different as you might think. Mm -hmm. We see that pretty clearly demonstrated and just... The various cast of characters that is in, that appear in the early stages of the book when they're in the, the not so war torn Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That's probably the perspective of it that's the most interesting to me is seeing what it was like before, it became what it is today, mm-hmm. and seeing how like the events of like you know, the Soviet invasion during the Cold War and then like the Taliban takeover after that and 
um, you know, seeing how on the people, yeah, that impact it truly had. So that's like, I'll probably pick this up at some point and read it. Cause I mean, I've always been fascinated with history and, um, and different uh, perspectives from different parts of the world. So, yeah, that and another book he's written called a thousand splendid sons. Oh, yep. Which is a very similar kind of overarching plan, but with a different, a different story to it. Sure. Mm-hmm. This a thousand splendid sons takes place pretty much wholly within Afghanistan, but dives much more deeply into the the Soviet occupation and the the consequences from the various factions thereafter. Because mm-hmm. so. to my understanding, like the Soviet Union invaded, and then there were these different resistance groups, and then mm-hmm. when the Soviet uh, Soviets left, then all these different groups mm-hmm. started fighting with each other for control of the country. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the Taliban came out on top, more or less. Yeah. So if you're interested in the history angle, I would say A Thousand Splendid Sons has more of that. But The Kite Runner still has a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And is sure. a different kind of story. So any other uh, truths that... Uh... I don't know. Don't take out your your daddy issues on your friends. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> always stand up, you know, like <laughs> friendship goes both ways. So if someone, you know, even if it means, you know, sacrificing your own safety mm-hmm. to save someone from being, you know, um, brutally beaten, brutally beaten and violated, you know, stand up for him, which mm-hmm. is easier said than done for sure. But oh yeah, for sure. I suppose but, one quick, quick clarification to a truth is that stealing is not the only possible sin. Mm-hmm. It's not the greatest yes. either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just putting that out there. There's, a, in fact, uh, 10 different things you can look at and say, yeah, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of those things are do do that. Well, mm-hmm. yes. But don't uh, not do that. Yeah. Don't not do that. And then it's sort of, yeah, because like, you know, that sort of selfless it, love that Hassan had for Amir, you know, wasn't reciprocated rather tragically. And I think it seems to me that Amir sort of realizes by the end that Hassan was ultimately braver than he was because he, you know, actually stood up in the face of evil and ended up paying for it with his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he, he but then he reciprocates that, that. He takes that mantle for himself going forward. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like making things right and raising this uh, kid as this kid as his own that he rescued from the Taliban. Um, goodness. What are some, uh, what is good in the kite runner? Obviously Amir's redemption arc. Mm-hmm. He Obviously. goes from being this very cowardly and Selfish. unwilling to do what is right and resentful and bitter to being someone who's much more full of life and willing to put himself on the line in big ways and little ways. Mm-hmm. You know, he's willing to get beaten almost to death to rescue Sorab and then to kind of suffer through the the small torments of trying to socialize him and bring him into a, you know, a place where he enjoys his life. Mm-hmm. But Which, then he like 
also little things like he at the end is the one who goes and runs for the kite, right? Which is the more he takes the stance, the less glorious job, but the one that's ultimately oriented to service and selfless love for the other, Mm -hmm. which is is what, what which is what Hassan embodied and what Amir is becoming Mm -hmm. as he becomes a father to Surab. So the, the title of kite runner is kind of a, a theme is it ever touched upon like why his why Baba didn't tell the boys that they were both his son? Nope, not to my knowledge. Because hmm. he didn't really want to admit that he was unfaithful to Amir's mother. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Beauty. Where's where can Beauty be found in the Kite Runner? Hosseini's writing is one of the best that I've ever read. And that I've read a lot. And particularly his imagery. It's just, it feels like you're there. And it has this... It's very immersive. It's incredibly immersive and incredibly detailed. And it just like, it puts you in the moment like nothing else I've ever read. Kind of really draws in your imagination. And it it really feel, you can feel the memory that he has of, you know, where he grew up and where his parents grew up. Because he does get, he's not all that old. So Mm -hmm. he does kind of get some of this from his So it's his personal memory, but then also sort of that familial history that's really alive in his writing. Which is very much a theme in his writing too, is kind of that familial, multi-generational history. Oh, sure. So his writing style is just brilliant. It's incredible. It, you've got to read it to understand just how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Unity. Um, the, kind of the two uniting themes are the kite runner and um, for you a thousand times over. Mm-hmm. You know? That's the, uh, Hassan's you know, kind of his life motto, essentially. You know, he'll mm-hmm. do anything and he'll do it repeatedly. And it's sort of, uh, I suppose, reveals like, or not reveals, but it sort of explores the, the concept of how, you know, true love both receives and reciprocates, right? Right. And so mm-hmm. uh, Amir has sort of received this selfless love from Hassan and sacrifice. But only toward the end of the book does he start to reciprocate and truly understand mm-hmm. you know take what he is you know the love he's been given and pass it on to another selflessly and that's sort of the key to his redemption as a character as a person and, and kite running you know fits into that same theme mm-hmm. you know right. you, he becomes the servant in the end mm-hmm. out of a selfless love for his adopted son mm-hmm Very cool. Very cool. Any other uh, words for the people this week? Um, shout out to any of our potential new listeners. Oh, Adam, yeah? Adam Carr, if you're here. Hey, Adam. Hello. Hi. Ple- um, pleased to have you. Any of my uh, seminarian brother Rory's young adult group, if you're listening. Hello. He said hello, he was going to tell you about it. Hello, hello. Hello. 
Oh, indeed. We uh, love to have you guys. So. Yeah. If you're if you're here, all two of you. If you're not, if you're listening, if and you're I not, know you uh, are. Just, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, we can't we, we can't steal that bit. No, I already said. Do you have anything for the people? I can't be completely derivative. But um, on that note, <laughs> thanks for listening to the Palladium Bapits. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Palapapists. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or complaints, or suggestions for future episodes, email us at palladianpapists at gmail.com. And we will uh, talk to you guys again next week. Adios. Bye. See you.